Michael Canner Podcast, a show about how to kick ass at work without losing your humanity. I'm your host, Amy Sandler, and today we're going to do something a little different. Kim's on the road with her family, and in her absence, our CEO, Jason Rosoff, and I are going to answer some of the advice questions folks have been sending us. Say hi, Jason. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon or evening, wherever you are. Good morning. It's morning for us right now here in yeah. uh, almost July. Although That's probably why good day works good day. so well. You can say good day, good day. any time of the day. Yeah. Yes, that's one of my favorite uh, theatrical productions, Waiting for Good Day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's inside baseball. I've yeah, sorry. It. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do today which rhymes with good day. What we're going to do is share some of these advice questions and see where where we might land on advice, not just for this person, but also for all of us that are really working through the practice of radical candor. So this one's about someone trying to give upwards feedback in a higher education environment. And I will say um, that I have actually spent several years uh, in a previous life uh, working in, in higher ed. So I found this one really interesting The questioner writes, I absorbed all of the lessons of radical candor and began applying them to my workplace. I was a junior faculty member at a small private university and made the mistake of trying to apply praise and criticism upward on my boss. Yes, this was a huge mistake. My boss realized quite quickly one of their underlings was trying to manage them, and within a year, I was coached out of my position and asked to resign or be fired. I tried to make my praise and feedback about me, what I needed to grow, operate uh, through clear communication, what my students needed, but my words and actions were interpreted as not following the chain of command, not following directions, and being overall combative. To make matters worse, the team my boss had built consisted of members rife with ruinous empathy and manipulative insincerity, so the workplace in general was as toxic as a Superfund site. (laughs) I mean, a few extra points for for the writing here. Maybe they're in the creative uh, writing department. Can radical candor work in higher education where everyone is broken and has an ego? How can someone apply these lessons upwards to help their manager better help you? This is the question. I will just reflect a little bit again, as I mentioned, having worked in higher ed, um, this line where everyone is broken and has an ego. Uh, really resonated. And what came up for me on this was, um, I think the reality is that we all have egos and we all have some some flaws, whatever um, area we work in. I found this is not just true in higher education, but in fact, across yeah. across all industries. And I think it's part of what makes us human and what makes radical candor, what makes radical candor so important. So I think one of One of the things is I would just even start with this idea of just starting to question my own assumptions of sort of how am I looking at the people around me? I don't know, Jason, did that, what, what, what did that bring up for you? Yeah, I, I, you know, for me, my, my reaction is that it's, it stinks. Like it's (laughs) the, the, the environment that they're describing is, is really rough and, uh, you're not the only person who I know who's worked in higher education. In addition to this, uh, the, the writer of this question who has shared that, that same experience of it being a, a fairly ego, uh, ego driven environment. And, and I think 
one thing that we hear fairly often that resonated with me is, is like, no, it's hard to practice radical candor alone, you know, like, because, you know, this, the, the saying that for someone who is very privileged, losing their privilege can feel like oppression yeah. as opposed to just equalization. Yeah. I think there's something similar here yeah. in, in this environment where there, if everyone is behaving in a manipulatively insincere way, someone, you know, trying to like have a heartfelt conversation can, it can actually seem like an anti-cultural act, even though it, it is like an act that is truly just like coming from the right place and, and more likely to produce the outcome that you want. So I just want to recognize the toxic stew that this person um, was living in and, and how hard um, it would have been to, to be successful with radical candor in an environment where people are primarily ego-driven and there doesn't seem to be a ton of self-reflection or a ton of holding one another accountable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great, I think that's a great point. And I, just to add to the ego part, I remember a faculty member saying once, never have the fights been so intense over problems that are so small. And so there is, (laughs) there's something to that. And I will say, you know, what's interesting to your point, you know, we see this a lot, not just about, um, upwards feedback, which is really the, the the challenge this person is dealing with, but just how to be that one person trying to practice radical candor, which is what you were talking about. And we do say, though, that radical candor starts with ourselves. And so I do want this person to feel, even if the overall environment might feel like this kind of to- toxic stew, that doesn't mean that there's not some, some agency and some opportunity for them to create relationships in their own sphere. So to me, it feels like maybe going in, starting with the upwards feedback might have been a little bit of a bridge too far rather than are there some peers, are there some people that they can actually start to practice with that would maybe one be sort of one next step rather than, you know, th- this sort of big leap into providing upwards feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think like we don't know the specifics of those conversations, right? We don't, we right. don't know what, what the actual feedback was or how it was delivered. Um, and all of those things can, can play a role in someone's, in someone's reaction. And, and I think like just recognizing again, that if they're, if they're accurately describing the environment, which there's reason to believe that they are, that your, this change in behavior is going to be quite noticeable even by peers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think there's another opportunity. So in general, when we talk about, um, people applying radical candor in an environment where it's not clear if it's welcome, let's say, uh, it is like sharing the idea is a powerful step to mm-hmm. take to say like, here, here's this thing that I read about and here's why it would be valuable to me. Um, uh, you know, we, we make the joke, uh, sometimes in, in workshops, like we don't want everybody to walk out of that workshop and speak in a different language. You know what I'm saying? We don't want them to, to, it to seem like, they're on the inside and the people who weren't in the workshop on the outside. So we encourage them very strongly to share, like share what you've learned, share, share these ideas with people. And I think in an environment like this, like there is a possibility, especially since it's a world of the mind, right. Uh, Theoretically higher education of of like sharing the idea um, can help to sort of like lay the, lay the groundwork for a further conversation. I think it's a great point, and I've done a bunch of workshops both at higher education institutions, and recently I did a keynote for a a big group of folks involved with um, working with student athletes. 
I think there's a lot of passion for radical candor in higher education. So I'd just say there's a real opportunity there, but what's going to really matter is your own relationship with it and how it relates to the kind of work that you all are doing. And really, again, that's why we always start by sharing your own stories and why it's meaningful, why it's meaningful for you. So, yeah. And, and one thing like, uh, that, that occurs to me also, like in, in this situation, like going to the feedback up part of it. Yeah. I, I think, um, the, if, if it feels like when you're, regardless of whether, which direction your feedback is going, but if, especially if it's going up, like if it feels like your, your, your feedback, you, you should be very curious about how your feedback is landing. You know what I'm saying? So like part of this is like that stuff happened a year past and then, so there's like a lot of time in between these things. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really important that if you're going to try to deliver feedback, praise or criticism, especially if you haven't solicited very much feedback from that person, that you make the effort to understand, like, is this helpful? Are our conversations actually making things better? Are they making things worse? Like, how could I approach this differently? Um, I think that question becomes like really essential, especially if this is relatively new or pretty different from the environment that you're in, because, this is a case where often perception is reality. And so they remark on their boss feeling like they were being managed. And if that, that may or may not be true, meaning like that may, may or not be the intent, but if that's the impact, um, then I think it's worth trying to learn that sooner rather than later. And that's one area when we say soliciting feedback or gauging the feedback that you're, that, um, that you're giving, uh, that can be really valuable. So to your point, whether you started with a peer or you, or you started with your manager, I think asking the question very explicitly, is this working? Is this helping? Like, is this making, are, are we making progress? Are we making things better? Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And as you said, we don't know exactly what happened in these conversations, but what was said was some, they made the mistake of trying to apply praise and criticism upward on my boss. And I think to your point, we really want to reiterate the order of operations across the board, which is always to start by soliciting feedback. And, you know, we don't know, did this person start by soliciting feedback and especially perhaps even soliciting criticism? You know, what are ways that we can work um, more, more closely together? Because when we say or we hear that, you know, this person says my words and actions were interpreted as not following the chain of command, again, how was that interpreted? Do we know that that was actually the interpretation or was that an interpretation of an interpretation? So I do think there's an opportunity here for this person to sort of look at what was their, their role in this. Did they start by soliciting feedback and did they get clarity on what they were saying and how that was actually landing? We always like to say it's measured not at my mouth, but at the listener's ear. So it does feel like there are a few moments where they can check in and see how is what I'm doing and saying landing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think like, again, we're focusing in, in this moment on the things that people, individuals who want to give upward feedback have control over. Right? I just want to distinguish that between the things that they don't have control over, Correct. which is like, we can't control people's reactions. And even if this person did this expertly, uh, there's still a chance that someone may not like it. And because it, it is different than the rest of the culture of the team, it also makes this person seem like an outsider, seem mm -hmm. like someone who's not following, playing by the rules. And, and that can cause real friction. And I think at, at least part of the friction they experienced in this case was because of that, right? Like I, I would, I would say like, we need to make sure that people try the things that are within their power and then 
make sure that they're aware as early as possible of like how this is being perceived. Because if it's not being perceived as helpful, that doesn't mean you have to give up. It just means that like continuing down the same path, applying the same ideas is not going to, to work. Your, the, your point, Amy, or, or the, the radical candor point about measured by the receiver, not by the giver, right? That radical candor is measured by the receiver, not by the giver. I, I think it's essential to the practice. I, I just, I, I think like radical candor requires relational awareness and you might be in a relationship where the radical candor approach is not working for that person or your your version of the radical candor approach is not working for that person for whatever reason we i don't think we ever want to be in a situation where we're forcing radical candor on somebody because that is like the exact (laughs) antithesis of it I have been this person. So like uh, I have been in this person's shoes from the perspective of like, I perceive myself as being really helpful. I'm trying to give very specific feedback, praise or criticism. The other person is clearly getting frustrated or annoyed with the way that I'm doing this. And I'm like, but I'm being helpful. I'm being helpful. And I feel like I'm on the moral high ground because mm-hmm. I, I'm like a radical candor. It's a good, it's a good thing. But it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not, that's not how it's being received. And that, it, again, it might be because of me and the way I'm doing it. it might be because of them and the place that they're in. But like, I've had this experience as a microcosm, like in relationships where generally radical candor does work, <laughs> uh, right? Where, where like my approach is usually well received, where I have a feedback conversation with someone and I take it really badly. And then I get very defensive because I feel like, well, I'm just being helpful in the way that I'm always helpful. So why are, why are you taking this so poorly? Um, and that often leads to like a degradation in the relationship as opposed to like a, a growth moment in the relationship. So this is so interesting. And just to dig in a little more, because we get so many questions about upward feedback. Let's dig into the toxics too of, you know, my, my manager does not want to practice radical candor because often the response is, well, find another manager, get another job. And you know, if you're a faculty member, junior faculty member, like this person is at a small university, or you're someone that doesn't feel like there's a huge amount of growth opportunities given COVID, et cetera, that's not always the option. So if you're in the situation like you just described, Jason, where whatever you're doing and saying, which could be exactly the same way with someone else that's going great, but with this person who happens to be your boss is not landing, now what? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I'll share one thought that I've been having lately, which is I think sometimes it's helpful to get some outside help. And this isn't about escalating necessarily. This isn't about like, you know, getting them in trouble with their boss because they're not doing this. But I think getting another perspective in those situations is actually really essential. And it might be really helpful. Like, let's say you've you've laid the groundwork, meaning that there are some people on the team who you're who are now aware of radical candor, have been receptive to it, and maybe you're having some good conversations with people. Like maybe that's possible with one or two people on the team. I think there's a possibility here of asking for some help and saying like, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm not sure if you've tried this with our manager. Like, how's it going? I'd love to get your guidance on how to approach this differently because I want to do it better. And the reason why I think it can be helpful is at least twofold. The first one is maybe this person is receptive to it from other people and not from you. And that that's interesting information. Oh, that's, maybe that's, else... that's very interesting. Do we yeah. want to hear that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah. And, and so like, 
but that that's that's helpful right because yeah. it helps you know like there's something in they're capable they're they're capable of it and there's something in your dynamic that really needs to be addressed correct and again this is not about blame i'm not saying it's right. the manager's fault or the individual's fault i'm just saying like that that's really helpful to know and the other possibilities like other people are struggling similarly and one thing we say when a manager finds themselves in a position that they're receiving feedback that they're being asked to deliver to somebody else, something that is helpful is encouraging those other people to talk to that third party, um, to the person who, for whom the feedback is destined, um, and, and share their experience so that that person starts to get multiple data points. And I think this is another case where we have the opportunity to offer multiple data points. So like you can recruit some help, not this is again. This isn't brigading. Your your goal is not to like throw this person under the bus. But what was that to, term, to say, brigading? Yes, that's like where uh, a conversation is infiltrated by a bunch of sort of nefarious actors, and they are representing opinions that aren't really their own in order to change a conversation. What is the origin of this word, Jason? I'm intrigued. I, I know it in the context of internet forums of various kinds. But my point being, like, your goal is not, not brigading. To, We're not brigading uh, here. Correct. Your goal is not to get people to misrepresent themselves. Your goal is not to get people to present an opinion that is not theirs. Your goal is to encourage, to, to find some allies and encourage them. Like, if you're also struggling with this, I, I think it'd be helpful if you shared that perspective with our boss. Um, because having some empathy for the manager, I think it is easy to be in the position of thinking, this is just a problem I have with this one person. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like a lot of times when people are in a toxic situation or there's a, a, you know, a manager um, who is behaving in a certain way uh, that is, makes it very difficult for other people, it can have like a gaslighting effect, meaning like mm -hmm. each individual can feel like they're sort of losing their minds. Like they're having this experience and other people are not having this experience. And yeah. I think that's a little bit of the setup here is that this person was alone in feeling yeah. this way and other people were sort of toadying to this person, but it's not clear if that's actually the case or if yeah, or are you actually opening a door to them and saying like, "Hey, you're not alone." I, I do think this this episode could be called "Gaslighting and Toxic Sludge," <laughs> and well, and what you're saying is like members who are rife with ruinous empathy and manipulative insincerity. I mean, one of the things we see about manipulative insincerity is that it can often be a result of gaslighting or feeling like you're just so beaten down and so exhausted that you're just kind of hunk hunkered in place, and so we don't know if we say, "Hey." I'm dealing with this and I'm really trying to improve this dynamic and I want to understand, you know, what part I might be playing. Have you yeah. experienced anything like this so that I can sort of understand the dynamic a little bit more? So you're yeah. almost offering an invitation for them to, to become upstanders together in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the distinction between this and clean escalation is like the goal of these conversations is to de-escalate, right? Like the goal of these conversations is to solve the problem as close to the metal, if you will, as, as you can. And it, they're action oriented. I think the, the one cautionary thing in the way that I frame this is like, I don't want people to think that the right thing for them to do is to run out there and, you know, gripe about their situation with all of their coworkers. I think if it turns into a non-action oriented session, or for example, if the person just like starts complaining about something else, I, I think we have to be mindful of that and make sure that we're not 
simply complaining about our boss behind behind their back because that's only adding to the yeah. the toxic stew. Um, to that point about clean escalation, just for folks that aren't really clear what that means, can you elaborate a little bit more? It just means that our, our goal is to solve the problem at the lowest level possible, meaning between the two people who are closest to the issue or conflict that is happening. Often the opposite of clean escalation is what happens in many organizations. Let's say you have two teams, adjacent teams working together, and someone on my team who reports to me tells me that someone they're having an issue on the project with someone who reports to you, Amy. So that's what, so I hear like, oh, this person on Amy's team is doing X, Y, and Z thing. A very common non-clean escalation is for me to receive that feedback, for me then to tell you, Amy, about it, and then for you, Amy, to deliver it to the person on your team. Right. And the, the problem with that is that we've played a gigantic game of telephone, num- number one. And number two, we've made it okay. We've made it essentially like the appropriate path to like not try to address the issue directly, but instead to try to circumvent a direct conversation so as not to have the discomfort of, of having that conversation directly. And what that means in practice is that everybody's talking about everyone else behind one another's backs. <laughs> now, totally. Like, and I, I mean, we, we see this all variations of this all the time in the workshops that we lead. Correct. And the, the, the way out is, is to encourage coach or support a direct conversation. Managers who are, or team members who are experiencing this should encourage people to have those conversations directly if, if at all possible. Um, if you're in a position and have some experience, maybe you want to offer some guidance or coaching about how to approach that conversation if the per- person is feeling uncomfortable. And if not, I think at that point you want to uh, try to encourage that person to find a resource who can help them approach this conversation directly. That might be going to their manager, that might be going to um, HR or something like that. Yeah. But, the, the idea of getting it close as close to the two people who are directly involved as possible. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we say is that this is the one time we're listening, which is usually our, our first order of operations is listening, but listening in this case is not, is not helpful. Um, what we want to do is get to an outcome that's as fair and fast as, as possible. And so I think just going back to the scenario we were talking about so that it doesn't end up in either a version of brigading or dirty escalation or I don't know all the metaphors here being really clear when you're going to that other person that it's about this specific situation you're trying to understand it better for yourself and what's their take on it and then based on that some sort of action so it's it's not so much a talking listening conversation as it is a sort of next step orientation yeah absolutely and and so like I, I think having talked this through, like what's in my head is I, I think encouraging people, like if you find yourself in a situation where you're trying to give feedback to someone who doesn't seem receptive, especially if they're a person with power in, in that relationship, you want to remember that you may think you know why that they're not receptive, but you don't necessarily know. And so job number one in that moment is like be curious about what's going on because the only way out is through to some extent, right? Yeah. If you can't leave and you can't find another job, if those aren't options, the, your best bet is to get curious about why that lack of receptivity is there. You might ask them directly by soliciting some feedback for yourself of like, Hey, this is what I've been trying to do. I don't feel like it's been super helpful. Can you help me understand like how I could approach these conversations differently so that they would be more helpful? If that doesn't feel comfortable enough, then maybe finding an ally or somebody else who you've introduced the idea of radical candor to who would understand what it is that you're trying to do in these conversations and get their perspective with the intention of 
either getting new information to change your approach or maybe encouraging them if they're having a similar experience to provide some additional data to this person on, on that experience. And then last but not least, I think if you discover like, look, this kind of feedback just really isn't welcome, I think there is a point at which you have to decide, like, can I accept that? Because lots of people work in environments where radical candor is not prevalent. (laughs) And yes, those environments are not going to be maximally productive. Yes, you're probably not going to feel as as comfortable or as engaged in those environments. But you're not, it's not a cop-out to say, like, I need this job to support my livelihood. And so I'm going to kind of accept that this is not this behavior is not going to be welcome in this environment, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be aware of that. I'm going to know how that's impacting my experience, but I'm not going to beat myself up continually because I feel like I'm failing to be radically candid. I think that's, that's so well said. So our next question is about a person who uh, works for a very small customer service team. They have uh, only a few, uh, three direct reports who handle incoming comms, a couple of administrators and, and one manager, and they work in, in an open office plan. Uh, this comes up quite a lot in our training as well. And they're so close that they're going to literally overhear everything that's being said. Kim's guidance in the book is that we should endeavor to give feedback as quickly as possible, to praise in public and criticize in private. And they're worried about creating a situation where every time they call someone away from their desk, it means that they've done something wrong. At the same time, they also don't want them to feel embarrassed uh, by pointing it out in front of their colleagues. The team is, is relatively inexperienced, and this person is a little bit worried about the effects that this might have on, on their collective confidence if they started having these conversations where others could overhear. Amy, what do you think? Well, first of all, I just think it's such a great question, and I just so appreciate the spirit in which it's being asked. Like, I feel like this person is very caring and this whole idea of relational awareness, they're pretty tuned into what's happening there. So just first of all, kind of kudos to this person. The other thing is that, um, you know, yes, there's, there's sort of this broad intention to praise in public and criticize in private and also to do things immediately and also to do things in person. So I just want to call out, first of all, that we're in a world where many of us can't really do this in person right now, whether it's because we're working remote or because of our actual layout and the logistics of we're all in one space. I, I personally am not a huge fan of open plan offices for this for this reason. Um, and so, you know, when I first heard this question, what, what came to mind for me was really kind of crowdsourcing uh, some some responses from this. Like, I think often the best wisdom is actually the folks that are living this experience. And so I think, first of all, letting them know, you know, ha- have the other team members either read the book or listened to a few podcast episodes or even just heard your radical candor story. So they have a little bit of a sense of what we're trying to do here. And then I, I think it would be really cool to say, you know, we're going to grow by by praising and also by giving criticism. Uh, and given our logistics, I, I do wonder if there's a way that they can sort of co-create some, some possibilities there. One is, you know, is there a way to go for more walks? I mean, one of the things about the benefit of a walk, it doesn't have to be about sort of praise versus criticism. It's actually just 
having a conversation. And, and it's, it's really quite powerful how emotion can move as the body is moving. So, so walks are always a good friend um, and also could sort of take someone out of the experience. The, the other benefit about this is let's, let's kind of call out the elephant in the room, which is like, we're all here. We're all going to want to grow. What's going to be a way that we can lean into the discomfort of growth in a way that's more comfortable based on our actual logistics? What, what yeah. do you think, Jason? It's it's sort of interesting because I, I think one of the challenges that we heard in the previous question was just how aware are people of what is happening and what you're trying to do? I, uh, internally, we've talked about several times, it's like hero, victim, villain mm-hmm. um, triangle that people sort of find themselves in. And often a challenge with radical candor is someone reads it, they feel very motivated. And so they think they're going to heroically bring radical candor to, to their team. And that I, I think can often backfire in a bunch of different ways. But the biggest way is that, uh, and we heard in the recent course that we taught, we heard a really touching story about this, um, about a gentleman who read the book and understood that they, you know, had been conce- perceived as very brusque. And they said, you know, I'm going to try to solicit some feedback. I'm going to try to praise people. And the people who they did that with became very suspicious of their change in behavior. <laughs> what happened to Mr. Brusque? You know? <laughs> yes. It wasn't that it was entirely unwelcome, but it was odd. It was such a shift in their behavior that they didn't, like people were having a hard time processing the difference between these two things. Yeah. We, we like to say that people are, have very well-tuned bullshit detectors. And if you're going to change your behavior or do something different, bringing people into that process, making, creating some, some, uh, allyship, some momentum around it, I think is really powerful because to your point, especially with an inexperienced team, very often what I've found is that people early in their careers are just incredibly hungry for growth. Yeah. And so if you approach this from the perspective of like, hey, let's make a collective agreement that we are going to invest in our growth. And in order to do that, we're going to need to adopt some new behaviors. And we're in this situation, whatever it is, we're all remote, we're all in the same office and it's an open floor plan, what, like whatever that situation right. is, we want to find the best way through that. So I, I love that idea of taking a moment to focus on the underlying goal, to use that as a, which is to help one another grow and to use that as a springboard to a rich collaborative conversation about how, what, what does that look like for us in this moment in our current situation? I think that's just such a great suggestion. Yeah, really well said. And I, I too was touched by that sharing and just, you know, it's, it's so inspiring when you see people that get so excited by the ideas. And so we want to really encourage that excitement and that motivation and then, and not have it be sort of quelled because you're coming off in a way that's actually totally different than what you're, what you're hoping for. The other thing, and to your point, which I think is such a good one to amplify when people are, 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 are new in their careers, whether it's age or whether it's actually they're starting another career, there is this appetite. Absolutely. And especially now, I mean, I think there's going to be so many people that are Maybe they're going back to school. Maybe they're trying a different career path. Like if we can come at this with a growth mindset, so we think, what do you need to practice radical candor? Well, you need self-awareness, you need relational awareness, and you really need this growth mindset. And so if we can anchor on that shared growth mindset, and we're doing this in service of each of each of our own growths and, and as a team. So I think that that sounds great. And I would just encourage people. I want to throw one really concrete tip in yeah. before we close on this particular thing, which is we say criticize in private praise in public 
the criticize in private is more important than the praise in public. And so one thing I wanted to share a personal experience, which is I had a manager who would take me out for coffee every time that he wanted to offer me some criticism. And I really loved coffee. But like the, after the 10th time that we went out for coffee and I received criticism, I started to have a Pavlovian <laughs> response to the smell of coffee would like actually provoke anxiety in me. And I was annoyed, not because the feedback wasn't good, but because my boss temporarily, I'm back on the coffee, temporarily brewing coffee for me. So one really tactical thing you can do is like sometimes when you call someone away to offer them some input or for go for a walk, uh, Amy, to your point, offer them praise. Like you don't also have to offer them criticism. Like you can just go for a walk and say, I just want to highlight something that went really well this week and to get your input on it. So don't make, don't make the walking away from the desk or pulling someone aside don't make it a bad thing. I, th I think yeah. we, we can balance that explicitly. I, I think that's such a great point. And, and by the way, we want to give more praise than criticism anyhow. And we're such right. creatures of habit. I'm thinking of, I think the research is by, if I'm not mistaken, Regina Pally about, we sort of have this predictive mind and we kind of plan ahead based on what's happened before. So I have this Pavlovian response. My dog has passed away now for four years but he would bark every time there was a knock or a doorbell. And back in the day that I used to travel all the time for work and room service would arrive and there was the knock, I would sort of get ready for that bark and the bark was not coming. And so we sort of get wired in these ways. Um, and so let's, let's create some new patterns in these walks and bring some, some praise uh, to them as well. Great point, Jason. So our next question is from a person who is finding it challenging to offer feedback to a particular person on their team. So they say, I have a problem that I'm having a hard time solving and they hope that we can help. We hope we can help too. Uh, we have a colleague, I'll call her Carol, who is in her first year with the company working part-time. She's older than many of our professional staff members, doesn't seem to have many common interests and she seems like a socially anxious person and doesn't interact much with the other staff, doesn't go out to eat with us, doesn't get coffee with any of us, and hasn't shared in any of the sort of social or community activities that they've done together as a team. As a result, it's sort of hard to know her particularly well, and therefore it feels hard to care for her personally in their feedback. And that's a challenge because Carol does need some peer-to-peer -peer feedback. There are a bunch of aspects of her job that she's not doing. She's just actually not doing the work. And when we've tried one-on-one -on -one to bring up some possible solutions, she has gone to our supervisor and the rest of the team has gotten in trouble for picking on her and for not getting to know her. At this point, several on the team feel that the bridge has been burnt and they're not going to help her. They, they say that one of the reasons why they feel like they can be of help is because they've done her job in the past. And so they have good perspective to offer. How do we help focus our feedback when it is so hard to get the care personally to come across? Well, this is such a great question. It's such an important question. And it's actually, we get, I'd say a lot of different flavors on this of like, well, how do I care personally for someone who X, Y, and Z, you know, whether they're different from me, whether they've done things that haven't landed well for me, et cetera. So I think, first of all, just from my own experience of how do you kind of move up on the care personally dimension in general, right? And this whole idea of like the sense of common humanity, common decency, but how do you, how do you get there, which just feels really urgent in this moment. And, and what I've done is I focus, first of all, on more what we have in common rather than what, what separates us. So I hear 
a lot about what separates Carol from the team. And so I would focus on what we what we do know about Carol just by the nature of being human, which is that, you know, just like me, she wants to be happy. She wants to have a sense of belonging. She wants to have a sense of purpose. She wants to feel like she's contributing. You know, she has good days and bad days. Um, she's known happiness. She's known suffering. Like just there's just this sense of being human that we can we can relate to. And there's this other thing that that leapt out at me when we think about empathy is is I would encourage the person writing in who it feels like, you know, I'd really think about like, what is my intention with, with this conversation? Is it to actually be helpful? And I heard that like, Hey, we've, we've done her job in the past. So we have some good feedback. So I do feel like there's a desire to be helpful. And I would get curious about, you know, for someone, what would it feel like to be, you know, a different age than someone, to have a different kind of learning style, to be more anxious, to not have similar interests? Like, we all have this need to belong, and how would it feel to be that one person that's not belonging? And to try to maybe put yourself in the shoes of, what if I was in a group where everyone else I was coming in and I was very different from all of them? And and what would I want those folks to be? How would I respond if they were just coming at me with, here's what you need to do, et cetera? So, I think there's there's an opportunity before we even get to Carol for this person and for the team members to do some kind of some perspective shifting and putting yourself in the other person's shoes and how might that feel and how might you want to be treated? I don't know, Jason, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point. I, I picked on a up on a very particular word, and this is unfair because like I'm doing a very critical reading of an email that someone put together, but um, it may be helpful to other people to call this out, which is. Uh, something that they said in the first part of this is that they've offered her solutions, that they've offered Carol solutions. And that's not the same thing as offering a perspective or feedback on what Carol is doing. And the important, there's a really important distinction here, which is regardless of how nicely we try to phrase our solutions, if we start there without helping the other person understand our experience a bit better, it can feel demanding and it can feel pedantic. It can feel demeaning because it's possible that that person is aware of the solution that you're offering, but because you op- because of the way that you go about offering it, it seems to discount that possibility. And so as a result, you're already putting the person on, on, on the defensive. So I think your, your point about perspective sharing is the making a narrower point that fits in that bucket, which is when you share solutions as opposed to share to asking questions, when you uh, or sharing perspective, you very often will find that you're putting the other person on on the defensive. I hone in on that because I, I think that's something we see a lot in our lot, like our, in our live trainings as well. Is like people confuse sort of feedback and advice, and so as opposed to this being like a collaborative effort, it becomes a like I'm the genius and you're you know I'm I'm the the teacher and you're the empty vessel and I'm going to impart into you knowledge, which is not necessarily helpful, and especially given what we do know that that might be playing a role because if this person is older and maybe has plenty of experience in, in roles like this, then uh, a younger person coming and sort of dropping knowledge bombs on them as helpful as they think that might be, might actually seem very demeaning. I think that's such a great point. Again, it goes back to we might have an intention in mind of what we're doing, but we need to be very mindful of impact. And I think that 
you know, what's very helpful about your specific framing of that, that getting really granular about solution versus guidance or perspective, or here's sort of this humility in the response, I do feel like this question can tap into some of the things that we see right now in terms of uh, sort of diversity, inclusion, bias, et cetera. So if you are sort of one of many of the majority and how that might land for the other person versus if you're sort of this sort of, are you in the in-group, are you in the out-group and how might it land? And I think in those cases, even more so to kind of over-index on humility and curiosity and sort of how is this landing for you rather than this is the way we do it and this is how, you know, and any perspective you might have is not welcome here. And I'm not saying that's what's being done here. I'm just saying when you're sort of the one against the many, that's especially how that might be heard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the guidance you gave about like trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes or at least like open yourself to the possibility that they might be having a very different experience from you is such an important act if your goal is to really be helpful. I sense the spirit of, of helpfulness is here. I also sense that there's real frustration. And many times like when when those two things live simultaneously, we can confuse ourselves, like the helpfulness and frustration live simultaneously. We can convince ourselves that we're being helpful, but we're acting on um, actually acting on the frustration. Right. Uh, right. Jason, I'm saying this to be helpful. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> my intentions just, and I'm filled just, with rage, but let me, be, <laughs> let me be very, very helpful for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, Get I off think, my foot. You're standing on my yeah. foot, Jason. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that this is, you know, I, I don't know what the job is. Again, we don't have all the information, but my guess is this person not doing part of their job is very frustrating and probably negatively impacts sure. the, the person in, in, in this story. And so it's not, this is an excuse, but to your point, Amy, like I, I think always our goal has, has to be, how do we make this conversation as effective as possible? And effective, we need to define clearly for ourselves because effective is help this person understand the impact that their behavior is happening and that we're here to help them resolve it. Um, that's, that's what an effective com feedback conversation is, is going to look like. What's interesting for me with the effectiveness is also like if this person is working part time and is in their first year, I'm really curious. And I think this is a struggle for folks, especially now when we're feeling pulled in so many ways is how do I actually get to know these team members to know, you know, maybe this person did have relevant experience and I just don't know. And so, for example, how do we actually take the time to invest in those kind of career conversations or starting to get to know our peers in a way that, that when we are giving feedback, it's coming from a place of being helpful based on what motivates and drives this other person. Yeah. Yeah. What you just said made me think of something that I think is also important in this case, which is I think there's also a potentially dangerous assumption being made here that in order to care personally, you need to sort of like share interests or have yeah. lots of social interactions, which I, I think is dangerous because it's actually okay to work with people with whom you're not going to socialize <laughs> after work. In fact, like if we actually build truly diverse teams of people who think and behave um, in different ways, then like it's going to be more likely. It brings me back to your earlier point about the in-group versus the out-group. I, I think we, we want to be careful about making assumptions. 
and, and I know this person is trying to counteract that, but to your point, they're, they're so grounded in the in-group, like just the behavior of like, they don't eat with us. Like you don't know what they're doing during their lunchtime. Maybe they're having a conversation with a loved one, right? They don't go for coffee. Maybe they don't like coffee. Maybe they don't have money to spend on coffee. All of these things that sort of feel like safe assumptions about what someone who is easy to get along with, you know, looks like, I, I think actually can wind up being subtly exclusionary, right? Because we just talked, there's sort of a classist problem there of like, oh, we, we go out to a fancy coffee place and this person doesn't go with us, but what we don't, they're working part-time, we don't realize they're on a fixed income outside. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot we, we might sure. not understand about that. And I think your solution that you've already offered is great, which is like to walk in their shoes, but I think it's just really important to recognize that these dynamics, as you're saying, can be subtle. These assumptions can build up over time and we can assume that that's what it means to, to care personally. But another way to get at caring personally would be to just be genuinely curious about the other person. Ab- absolutely. I think, and I think it's such an important point because I think people think care personally does mean that we're going out for drinks and we're doing, you know, trust falls and team and we're doing yeah. everything together. And that's not what we're talking about. It's actually seeing the sort of unique individuality of each person and getting to know them and what their strengths are and what their interests are. And you know, why are they working part-time? Like, what else are they doing? You know, just like to your point, just getting really curious about Carol. Yeah. And it's not just this, right? It's just a good life lesson to your point. I think it extends beyond like work feedback, but it's just such an, it's such a valuable and important stance to take when we find something that feels frustrating and unfamiliar. If we can adopt a stance of curiosity, as opposed to a stance of frustration or annoyance, we have, it just presents us a huge opportunity for us as individuals to grow and learn, to like experience something new, to see the world through somebody else's eyes, but also collectively, like as a team, and then more broadly as like a community or a society, I think the world would be better if we could all be more curious about Carol. Someone writes in saying, I've been a manager for seven years and realized I need help. So again, as Jason said, we're here to help. We'll do our best. This person's made many mistakes as as we all have. So this is someone who identifies themselves as someone that can't think quickly on their feet. They have two young kids at home, a little sleep deprived, and also an introvert. So when someone comes to them with a complaint or criticism, negative attitude, they're more likely to react with what they describe as word garbage rather than to stop and think. Love the phrase. It goes right with our our sludge fund, uh, our sludge. uh, There's a lot of garbage and sludge and stew, toxic stew. So once this person is gone, this person realizes what they should have said most of the time. I think a lot of us can relate to that. The question is, what do you recommend in these situations, especially if an employee is expecting an immediate answer or acting angry, defensive towards them? Even when this person has a good idea of what's coming, they still kind of feel themselves saying the wrong thing and feel like maybe having a script in front of them would help, but could that make the employee feel like they're actually not being listened to? Yeah. This question hits me right in the feels. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone has been in this position at some point in their life. This is not, I mean, this person's talking about it from a managerial perspective, but like this also, this happens in all kinds of relationships where your reaction in the moment is does not honor your intention and creates an impact that you did not want to create. It's hard to confront and manage emotions. Like that's what this is really about. It's like when I'm confronted with emotion, like I sometimes have a hard time managing my own reaction to that. And I just think that this is a perennial struggle for humanity. And, you know, not the least 
of which because like we have biology and neurology that encourages us to sort of mirror another person's emotion to like pick up on that signal Absolutely. and, and to, to, to use it. So like you're fighting against an instinctual response often, which is to match the other person's emotional state. In some cases we talk about fight, flight, or freeze. That's the fight response. In some cases people sort of run away. In other cases they, they kind of shut down. These might be instinctual responses to especially threatening situations, which I think someone coming in and being very angry or being very defensive can feel very threatening, can feel, feel very sort of personal. And so I, I think the thing that I really anchored on in the question as you were reading is just the immediate response. I, I think learning how in the moment to slow down and also recognizing that just because someone comes in angry and expects an immediate response, that doesn't actually mean that that's what's best for them. And so actually being helpful, actually meeting that person's need might mean taking some time to reflect on it and coming back to them. And I know that can be really unsatisfying. And so one thing that I found that can be really helpful is to make a commitment as to exactly when you're going to come back to them. So it's a balance between those two things to say, like, I hear you. I understand. I don't actually, I need some time to think about this and I want to come back to you, which can feel like a brush off unless you say, and I'll come back to you in an hour. I'll come back to you. Like, can can we meet again tomorrow to talk? Like, we, we can set up a a time to, to follow up. So that's that's one thing that I found to be helpful. Amy, what what do you what do you do when mm-hmm. I come at you all angry? And well, first of all, I'm very fortunate. I don't I don't get a lot of that from you. And I will say one of the things I so appreciate about you is your thoughtfulness and your your real willingness to create space. And I think this is really what this conversation, this specific question is about is sort of how can we create space in a moment? And one of the things that I found, I I really, to your point, I, I really resonated with as well. And I just felt just so much of a desire from this person to kind of to grow and also maybe a little self judgment. Like I wish I wasn't this way, but I am. So I'd say, first of all, to this person, like you're human. This is like one of the reasons why I love the neuroscience of, of emotions and managing emotions is because for me, it helped take away some of the sort of shame or guilt, or I should, I should not be having this response. It's like, well, no, you are having this response. This is how we're wired. So even just understanding a little bit of the neuroscience, which Jason talked about of that sort of fight, flight, freeze response. We sort of got cortisol and other hormones running through us. And, and then also these mirror neurons that we are, you know, we're actually wired to take on other, other people's emotions. So for me, at least understanding some of what's actually happening under the hood can create a little bit more compassion for myself. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is a quote, it's, it's been attributed to Viktor Frankl, and Viktor Frankl was a psychologist and a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote a very famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, and the quote says that between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space is our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. For me, what I think about are kind of tips to actually just create a little bit of space from that stimulus, that person coming towards me, you know, how do I create a little bit of space from what's happening in the environment, whether it's the person coming at me and then my own emotions before I make the response. And I think we often feel like when someone comes right at us, there has to be sort of this equal sort of cadence to it. And it takes a good bit of strength 
in sort of internal strength to say, look, this is, there's clearly a lot going on here and, and this relationship is really important. So to your point, Jason, I'd like to create a little bit of space and follow up in a little bit of time. One of the things I do just in the moment is actually breathing and being very conscious of my breath. So even just, you know, one inhale and exhale to sort of settle the mind, another one to sort of relax the body. Third breath, I always like to connect with my intention. So what, what matters most in this moment? And in this moment, what matters most is this person knows that I care. I think what they're going to remember more is that in that moment when they were really upset that I showed that I cared rather than I had the specific words. After that big emotional moment has passed, then we can get into the specifics. And by the way, maybe the specifics are, are written. Maybe it's in an email follow-up, et cetera. So know that there's, there's going to be a place for the words, but in that moment, can I manage my emotions so that I have the ability to not necessarily take on their emotion and I can actually help calm them through my own calm state. And then they can start to mirror what I'm giving off rather than vice versa. Yeah. I, th I think it's such, it's just such helpful guidance. I was, I was doing a, a guided bicycle ride on my pandemic Peloton <laughs> And it was so interesting because you're physically exerting yourself. And I have had this happen in yoga classes as well, where you're physically exerting yourself. Your body desperately needs oxygen and you wind up holding your breath. And she made this correction as we were doing this like last hill climb part of the ride. And it was like the resistance was really high and we we're pushing and like my heart rate was like 145, 150. So it was like peak of the like overall peak of the exercise. And she's like, unclench your jaw and take a breath. And I was like, oh my God, I'm holding my breath as I'm like climbing this virtual hill on this. I'm like, why am I holding my, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. It's so yeah. counterintuitive. I'm holding on to dear life, except I'm actually not breathing. <laughs> exactly. So my muscles are burning and they're telling me literally like you need oxygen, like you need oxygen and I'm holding my breath. And so I found this practice of like rooting in breath to be so powerful. And so I just, I love this guidance. I love the simplicity of it. Um, and I'm so glad that you had an opportunity to share it with people because we often hold our breath in moments of stress. And as a result, I think we become disconnected from what is happening in our minds, in our bodies, in the space around us. We become, we become disconnected. It's sort of like pulling our attention inward into this space where it's like unconsciousness into unawareness and releasing that breath was so helpful because it like I changed my posture when I, I didn't just take a breath like the unclench your jaw and take a breath helped me realize like I was clenching my hands also and my posture wasn't upright it was sort of hunched over and all of those things were made possible because of the reminder to take a breath yeah it's such a great story. And this kind of thing happens all the time. And what came up for me as you were talking was, first of all, that even just very subtle shifts, the, the relaxing, the drop, the jaw, the dropping, the shoulders, the, the deeper breath. I've been doing a lot more work on sort of abdominal or diaphragmatic breathing, which I thought I knew how to do. I've been breathing, you know, doing breath work for like a decades. And yet I'm still working on the breath, which by the way, we're born knowing how to do. So we, we can remember how to do it. We just, our, our brains have gotten in the way and, and these patterns. The other thing that I'll reflect on is what I found, especially doing a lot of speaking. Once you know the content 
as a speaker, you actually sort of can throw away the content. And when you're fully present in the moment, there's, there's an innate confidence and trust that you will know what is needed in the moment. And so to me, where the, the practice goes an even deeper level is that if I am fully present in this moment with this other human, I can trust that how I show up will actually be of service because it's coming from a deeper, more present and connected place. And that's, that's the invitation. So I might not have the words exactly right. I might not have, you know, follow the script or whatever that is. I can know that it's really coming from this place of being helpful, being of service, being curious. I love that. All right. Well, we're going to continue these advice Q&As. Thanks, Jason, for, for being there as my co-pilot yeah. on this episode. You got it. All right. Hey, if you've got more questions for us uh, or answers, we also like answers. But as Jason said, let's think less about solutions and more about kind of co-created uh, moving in a shared direction. So questions and best practices, send them our way, advice at radicalcandor.com. We're looking forward to it. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon. 